This is Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien as she examines America's most infamous true crime cases through the lens of the court, not the court of public opinion. This show will bring you the facts as they were established in the courts and the basis for the decisions of the appeals courts. Here's your host, Lisa O'Brien. In episode 12, Kyle and I are talking about State of Oklahoma versus Richard Eugene Glossop. Glossop was convicted of arranging the murder of his boss, Barry Van Treese, at the Best Budget Inn in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, on January 7th, 1997. In part one, we'll look at the case against Glossop, the legal proceedings that included two trials, a direct appeal, and state and federal post-conviction claims. We'll also talk about Glossop's 2015 execution dates and his challenge to Oklahoma's use of midazolam in its execution protocol and the September date that did not go forward because of a drug mix-up. And uh, we'll get started. Hi, Kyle. How are you? Welcome back. Yeah, good afternoon, Lisa. Great to be back. Um, Good to uh, join again. For the true crime fans of our podcast, I join you today from Kilgore, Texas, which was a site of one of our early episodes, uh, the infamous KFC murders in Kilgore, Texas. Yeah. So how are things in Kilgore? You have a lot of fireworks? Yes, absolutely. It it is warm like most of the state and looking forward to some fireworks this evening or tomorrow as well. All right. Yeah, we have, uh, we're going to have some official, unofficial fireworks. I live near a sketchy area, so there will probably be gunfire. Um, <laughs> and we'll never know whether it's just dummies filing it, firing into the air or somebody being shot. It's always um, the, the New Year's Eve, July 4th. Please don't shoot your guns in the air because the bullets do come down. Come down. And, and we've actually had in New Orleans, we've had people killed by gunfire. Uh, by bullets coming down and and hitting them in the heads, mm. um, usually in the French Quarter, you know, in a densely pop- populated area. So uh, yeah, this is part one. the The Glossop case has been going on since 1997, and I think no matter how diligent we are, we're not going to get through everything in a couple of hours in one episode. <laughs> So we're going to do two episodes um, about it. We're going to look at the case against Glossop now and then the latest post-conviction claims that began after his execution date was set for September 22nd of 2022. Sounds great. All right. So, of course, first of all, we start with the victim, uh, Barry Allen Van Treese, who was born on December 3rd, 1942 in Kansas City, Missouri. His parents were James Braswell, called JB, and Pauline Bowden Van Treese. Uh, the, the Van Treese family, apparently, Barry's parents owned hotels or motels as well. So this is probably where he 
Yeah, the family business was introduced to the family business. And I think his father, um, you know, like Barry was also in addition to owning motels, he was involved in other types of businesses. I think he had a very successful electronics business. Um, but I didn't do a deep dive into into Barry Vantrese's family history. Um, because again, the case precedes the internet or the, the spread of the internet. And so there's not a lot of information out there. Um, Barry was probably the oldest child. Uh, he had brothers, Kenneth, Gary, who died in 1980, a sister named Alana. And he had two other brothers and a sister who I didn't find easily identified and, and did not find names for. Uh, he attended Lawton High School and graduated in 1961. He attended Cameron University, and it says he graduated in 1963, uh, which is pretty impressive to yeah, finish in is. two years. Um, he went to Arkansas State University for a time, and then he earned a master's in banking and finance from uh, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. He was employed in banking for many years, he also was interested in electronics and he began with motels uh, as well, kind of, I think, as a side business. Yeah. In, uh, on March 3rd, 1979, he married Donna Sue Calloway and they had seven children, Brett, uh, Barry, Brett, Derek, Ben, Daniel, Bridget, and Joe. Uh, he was also a member of the Lawton Fort Sill Amateur Radio Club and a member of First Baptist Church. And his cause of death was blunt force trauma and blood loss from injuries he sustained in an attack at the motel on January 7th, 1997. Uh, perpetrator Richard Eugene Glossop, he was born February 9th, 1963, not 1964, typo. Uh, in Galesburg, Illinois, his parents were Heron and Sally Glossop. He was one of many, many children. Uh, Sally's obituary says 16. Um, I know I was able to identify Robert, Kathy, Nancy, Terry, and he had, like I said, five to 10 additional or 11 additional siblings. They're big families, both his, you know, he grew up in a big family and he had a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he, well, he had four kids. So compared to his family, that's quite small, but imprisonment and divorce may have been, yeah. uh, may have impacted his uh, procreation. Um. He was divorced twice prior to incarceration. His first wife uh, was Jackie, was named Jackie. Uh, she had, they had three children, Christina, Erica, and Richard Jr. And then Missy King was the second wife. They had Tori Lynn. Uh, they were divorced again. He was engaged to a woman by the name of Deanna Wood at the time of this crime. Uh, she was living in the motel with him and, and helping him manage it. They were never married. Uh, they were 
never really officially engaged, but he says he was engaged. Uh, he has subsequently married two more times in prison. Uh, in 2018, a young woman by the name of Lee Joy Jurassic, who uh, he was married to from 2018 to 2021, Glossop in his divorce petition. It's a lot of freaking nerve for a man in prison to file for divorce against a woman on the outside. Uh, he requested spousal support because he and his spouse had disparate financial conditions. <laughs> You mean you mean he wasn't able to like make a lot of money while yeah. being on death row? Um, and and you know well, and this also says something about his character. He doesn't care who he gets the money from as long as he gets the money. So you know, people make a note of that because that's a character. You know that shows his character right there. Uh, he recently, as we saw, married a young woman by the name of Leah Frederick Roger who is an anti-death penalty advocate. Um, he did not have any criminal con convictions, but I think he had a pretty substantial driving record. Yeah. Uh, pretty substantial contacts with police because of his driving record. And he says my license was, he tells the police his license was suspended, but he had a car and he was driving it around. So again, we have somebody who shows a lack of respect for law. And law enforcement, he's going to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. Yeah. Um, and then he also was uh, just prior to Barry Ventrice's murder, uh, based on evidence introduced at his trial, he was accused of embezzlement from the best budget in motel that he managed on behalf of Mr. Ventrice. Um, and I think it's also uh, important to note that um, while he didn't carry out the murder, he is the person who sought the murder to be done. And I'm just going to say right off the bat, to me, in my opinion, that makes him more morally culpable right. and more legally culpable than the person who carried out the murder. Yeah, so that's a good, yeah, that's a good grounding because, yeah, catching up. So he's not the one, he's not accused of actually executing Mr. Van Trees, but he's the one that set it all in motion, planned it, and had the uh, the other man who was convicted actually carry out the crime. Correct. Correct. Um, now, the facts established at trial are that um, in 1995, Barry Van Trees hired Glossop to manage the best budget inn in Oklahoma City. Uh, Van Trees had learned about Glossop from a friend of his, a 1% who had a 1% interest in the motels by the name of Cliff Everhart, who apparently was some kind of character. Um, Glossop earned $1,500 a month and was provided with an apartment with all expenses paid by the motel. He also earned a 5% bonus of total revenue in excess of $18,000 earned by the motel per month. Uh, the $18,000 figure was set by the Van Treces as the sum that they needed to meet all of their business and personal expenses each month. In 1996, Glossop did earn bonuses for each month between January and November. However, 5% over 18,000 is not, did not really amount to a whole lot of money with the exception of a couple of months. 
most of his bonuses were between 50 and $25. Yeah. And for those of you, for those of you listening who are not familiar, I mean, these are, these kind of, these best budget ends and they're kind of type, you know, they're kind of chains and they're these kind of roadside motels that they're maybe not the worst motels like you see on TV with, you know, just crime and, you know, prostitution everywhere, but they're not exactly, you know, the Marriott either. These are pretty low rent, you know, probably just below a motel six, you know, barely. You're lucky if you get clean sheets and some clean towels and you don't find something disgusting in the room. Yeah. Um, Barry and his wife, Donna also owned a second property in Tulsa. Um, the procedures for handling money collected at two properties were also different receipts for the Oklahoma city property and receipts. um, When I refer to receipts, I mean, cash travelers checks and credit card receipts. Um, the, the income of the motel generated and that's in the business. Those are often just called receipts. Um, receipts for the Oklahoma City property were kept in a FedEx envelope in the manager's apartment with the registration cards. The manager reported the number of rooms rented and the amount collected by a phone call to Donovan Treese each day. At the Tulsa property, the money collected was deposited into a bank account. So the, the uh, situations at the two motels were a little different for the managers. And the opportunities for monkey business for those managers were different. Um, The Van Trees family did suffer several personal tragedies, which included the sudden death of Donna's mother and the death of Barry's mother during surgery in 1996. Uh, Barry had retired from banking, I believe because of his health and had more or less gone to full-time operation of the two motels. Uh, But his efforts to oversee the operation of the motels declined, resulting in fewer trips to the properties during the last half of 1996. And those trips were limited to collecting receipts and documents and leaving. Trips to perform repairs and refurbish rooms in the motels were non-existent during that period of time. And that explains how Richard Glossop was able to take advantage. And under Richard Glossop's management, the hotel did decline or the motel did decline from just below a Motel 6 to a dive. Yeah, he let a lot of bad stuff happen. Yeah, Um, including allowing his drug dealer brother to live on the property and sell drugs. Uh, He also had people working for the motel who were not paid and who had no paperwork, who were just, you know, being working in exchange for their rooms, Uh, which is not ever a good situation. So by the time of Barry's visit on January 6, 1997, the conditions had become deplorable. Many rooms were uninhabitable and others were being rented off the books by Glossop, who, like we said, allowed his brother to deal drugs on the property. And in my personal opinion, I believe any crimes being committed at the hotel or the motel by his brother or by Justin Sneed were being committed 
with Glossop's approval and for a cut. Um, and in addition to a plan to survey the rooms and document maintenance issues, Barry intended to retrieve missing money and records from Glossop. Apparently, the weekend before this visit, the receipts, the money collected by Glossop Friday, Saturday, and Sunday were missing. Or Friday and Saturday were missing. And Glossop is saying that he was averaging four to $500 a day. So that's a significant amount of money. Um, and a lot of what we know about this stuff comes from Glossop, either statements to other witnesses, statements to police. And this is where the, the suspicion of Glossop came yeah. by police when they were investigating. Um, yeah, so it's important always to remember all the, you know, there's no magical com police conspiracy to target a poor innocent man. All of, you know, the reason he's targeted is because stuff that he says. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, Barry was intending to retrieve the missing money and records. He and Donna were also discussing firing Glossop and the manager of the Tulsa Motel uh, because they felt both properties were being mismanaged. And uh, just kind of as an aside, while there's a lot of talk in the media about records actually not showing embezzlement or the state having proven embezzlement at trial that never happened or the allegation that embezzlement wasn't happening. Um, it doesn't matter whether money was being embezzled or not. Barry and Donna Van Treese believed it was. And they were going to act upon that belief. And that is where Richard Glossop, who prided himself on his clean record, would have felt probably put upon because in his mind, he's done so much for that motel and so much for Barry Vantries. And how dare Barry Vantries accuse him of committing any crime? Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I believe, again, it's only my speculation. I believe that at some point during his conversation with Barry Vantries, uh, the the threat was made that the police were going to be called if he didn't find that five you know thousand dollars that was missing or eight hundred dollars that was missing whatever the amount was from the weekend um justin sneed who was also known as justin taylor had arrived at the motel in oklahoma city with a roofing crew from texas he became friends with glossop and soon quit with his brother or stepbrother to become the hotel's maintenance man. He earned no salary, but had a free room at the motel. An admitted drug user, Sneed had been accused of breaking into cars and stealing from guest rooms to support his habit. Uh, but again, when you have somebody who's not making any money, what do you expect them to do if they do drugs? They're not earning any money to spend on drugs. So what do you think they're yeah, going to do? Right. You know, they're going to steal from rooms and, and again, I think if Justin was doing this, he was doing it and Glossop knew about it and Glossop was getting a cut. 
And, you know, that's my opinion. Yeah, he had to be, right? I mean, you know, he he's the manager. He knows everything yeah. that's going on. He knows the long-term folks that stay there. Mm-hmm. He, his eyes and ears are everywhere. Nobody's yeah. doing anything out of there without him knowing. Right. And, I mean, you know, his brother's a drug dealer. And his brother's living in a room at the motel dealing drugs. <laughs> I, You know, I don't think that was under Richard Glossop's nose. I don't think he was oblivious. I think he knew exactly. And... He was either taking the the rent money and putting it in his own pocket and not reporting it. Uh, And apparently that was a problem uh, at the motel or he was he was charging Bobby a cut. Uh, Barry arrived at the Oklahoma City property between 530 and 6 p.m. on January 6, 1997. He took care of payroll. He checked the paperwork maintained by Glossop and picked up money, again, referred to as the receipts, uh, that had been collected since his last visit. Uh, There's a discrepancy between whether it was five days or nine days. Uh, In Glossop's statement, it was nine. So, but then there's the missing, the missing receipts. So that's kind of unclear. Barry left for Tulsa at about 7.50 p.m., taking the key to room 102 with him. According to testimony at trial, he'd issued an ultimatum to Glossop to produce missing business records and receipts collected during the past weekend. Barry and Donna also believed Glossop had embezzled about $6,000 over the past year from their business, and some witnesses testified that Barry had threatened to contact police. Barry arrived in Tulsa between 11 and midnight on the 7th of January, the Tulsa manager, William Bender, reported that Barry told him 2,400 registration cards were missing in Oklahoma City, and the weekend receipts had not been deposited. Barry checked the Tulsa property for off-the-books tenants, issued payroll, collected business records, and left after about 45 minutes. Um, at 2.30 a.m., Glossop and his girlfriend, Deanna, would close the office and went to bed. At around 4.15 or 4.30 a.m., John Beavers, a tenant, heard glass breaking around room 102 and observed a broken window and glass on the sidewalk, meaning the window was broken from inside the room. Uh, Sneed later testified that the window was broken during his attack on Barry Ventries. During the early morning hours, around 5 o'clock, Sneed woke Glossop and Deanna. He reported to Glossop that he killed Barry, but Glossop lied to Deanna and told her that Sneed said two drunk cowboys had broken the window in room 102. Glossop also gave inconsistent statements about the cowboys, telling some that Sneed rented the room to them and others that they broke the window during a fight outside the room. Later that morning, Glossop helped Sneed place a piece of plexiglass on the outside of the window and a shower curtain over the broken window inside the room meaning that on at least one occasion, he was inside room 102 with Barry Ventries' body. Um, Glossop made several conflicting statements to others about Barry's whereabouts that morning. Billy Hooper, the desk clerk, arrived at 8 or 8.30 that morning. She testified she was surprised to find Glossop up at that hour. Glossop told her Barry had gone out for breakfast and to buy construction supplies. Donna became concerned later that morning because Barry was a diabetic and she hadn't heard from him. Glossop told her that he'd seen Barry that morning and that he was fine. 
He repeated a lie about Barry buying supplies for room renovations to other people that morning. That afternoon, Glossop, Indiana left the motel to run errands. They cashed Glossop's check, bought new glasses to replace Glossop's broken ones, and Glossop bought a cheap engagement ring for Deanna, spending about $100. Um, and by I, I mean, I mean, not to just, you know, random comment, but I'm always on all of these cases, you know, you feel like, why do all these people, if they're supposedly innocent, they make conflicting reports, they make, they just basically lie. It just doesn't make any sense. You know, if you're innocent, you don't know anything about a crime. Why would you just make up that you saw the killer? I mean, mm -hmm. you saw the victim. No, no, he didn't. He's denied seeing the victim. Uh, he repeatedly denied having seen Barry Ventries. He denied ever entering room 102 to police. But I think later he testified at uh, maybe his first trial or admitted to his attorneys and his attorneys conceded that he was in there and helped hang the shower curtain. Um, so he was in there at least one time, but yeah, you know, like I said, he lied and denied being in the room, right? Initially, uh, but he eventually admitted it and did admit to having been in there at least one time. Um, I don't know how that came up. It may have been, like I said, testimony in his first trial, which even though he didn't testify at the second trial, the prosecution could have used that during the first trial. Um, he could have also admitted it to Deanna or someone else who then testified about it during the trial, um, as a statement against interest. Um, so yeah, he didn't claim to have seen Barry's body, but he gave no, a statement I'm, I'm, that so put him I'm in the room. I thought he saw, I thought he testified that he saw him that morning he, after he had been killed. Well, he's, he, he does, he testifies about seeing him. But we'll get to that a little bit later, too. Gotcha. Um, but anyway, yeah, he did tell people he saw him going to breakfast and that he was going to get construction supplies because they're going to renovate all the rooms. They're going to do three rooms a day until they finish the motel. Yeah, it's just weird. And then they're going to go know, to Tulsa and lie, You know, lie about stuff. It's like, why would you lie? It doesn't mm -hmm. make any sense. Yeah. I mean, he didn't tell the, the desk clerk, nope, don't know where he is. He went to Tulsa and never came back. Right, exactly. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, didn't tell his it's wife. Really yeah. Lot. You know, maybe we should be concerned and call the police right now. Cause we didn't see him. He right. never came back, but he told her, I saw him. He's fine. Um, that afternoon again, they went off and, and later on, we'll talk about that shopping trip and what Glossop would have had left from his paycheck. Um, uh, at around three o'clock PM, Barry's car was found parked at the Wioki credit union and Billy was summoned to identify it. She then paged Glossop to come back to the motel. Uh, yet again, when he came back to the motel, even though he knew since the early morning hours that Sneed had killed Barry and that Barry's car had been found, Glossop didn't tell anybody that Sneed told him he killed Barry, that Barry was in room 102. And, you know, he, he went on, he went out with Deanna and Cliff Everhart on a search of dumpsters and fields around the property when he knew exactly what had happened and where Barry Ventries was. 
So he lied by omission. Right. Um, and sometime after being tasked with searching rooms, looking for Van Treese, and skipping room 102, Sneed disappeared. He walked away. Um, but he didn't leave Oklahoma City. He actually went back to the roofing crew that he had come into town with and went back to work for them. At around 4.30 p.m., Officer Tim Brown joined the search for Barry and Glossop made, once again, conflicting statements to Brown. Uh, he told Brown several different stories, including that he had seen Barry that morning. He also failed to mention Snead's early morning confession and continued trying to steer people away from room 102, even though he knew exactly where Barry was. Between 10 and 10.30 p.m., Brown and Everhard, after comparing notes on Glossop's various statements, decided to check room 102 and found Barry's body. He was lying face down, covered by the bedspread and sheet from the bed, which had been stripped. They found a shower curtain duct taped to the inside of the window and plexiglass on the outside with caulking to seal the gaps. They also found glass stacked on a chair inside the door and a roll of duct tape. A pocket knife covered in blood was also found under Barry's body. Glossop was contained and continued trying to cover up the murder and Sneed's involvement. He denied making statements reported by Brown and Everhart. He Excuse me. He claimed things were getting confused. He claimed too many people were asking him too many questions and things were getting misinterpreted or misconstrued, uh, but which he didn't use. He said misinstrued, uh, which is hilarious. <laughs> um, he claimed things were getting confused. Even when detectives told him that they knew he knew more than he was telling, he lied and denied any knowledge of what happened. This is, again, during his interview on the on January 8th, uh, immediately after Barry Ventry's body was, or in the early morning hours after Barry Ventry's body was found. Um, due to a lack of probable cause, police were fo forced to then release him. Uh, and again, they haven't talked to Sneed, so they know nothing about Sneed's involvement. Ventry, uh, Glossop hasn't said anything about Sneed's involvement. He said, I had a feeling but he never said he did it. And he told me he did it. Right. Um, and uh, he lied to them and he, they know he's lying. I mean, they, they have no doubt that he's lying to them, but they well, just don't I mean, again, have anything not to, to beat prove a dead it. Horse, but that's always, I mean, that's always the theme. It's like, if you're innocent and you're not involved in this at all, why do you keep lying? Why are your statements inconsistent? Why do you report seeing the victim alive when, he was clearly dead before. Like, why? Well, right. I mean, all the inconsistent statements. I mean, just there's no reason to lie. It's yeah, yeah. On January eighth and 9th, Glossop began selling his possessions, including furniture, a TV, and vending machines. Uh, he sold Everhart an aquarium and told him he was moving on. Um, and and th this is why I called Glossop a dog ate my homework kind of liar because he will make a statement like this and he'll say that i'm not running i won't run i'm not leaving but you told everhart you're moving on what what do you think that implies that you're leaving right. oklahoma city dumbass 
Um, <laughs> but um, police were keeping tabs on Glossop after his release, and they were informed that Glossop was making plans to leave town. After a visit with attorney David McKenzie, who represented Julius Jones, by the way, uh, Glossop was arrested and questioned again by detectives. McKenzie had tried to help Glossop by telling detectives that he wasn't going to speak to them, but Glossop ignored McKenzie's advice and waived his right to counsel. He also did not pay McKenzie, even though he would claim that he was selling belongings to pay for an attorney. Um, and uh, it was on January 9th when he was questioned again after being arrested and having police seize $1,757 from him uh, in cash that Glossop finally admitted that Sneed had confessed to killing Barry Ventrice and he tried to justify and deny his false statements on the 7th and 8th by again saying so many people were asking me questions. I got confused. I'm easily confused. I'm not good with times, you know, right. every dog right. ate my homework kind of excuse. Uh, and, and when all else failed, I didn't say that. That's not what I said. They even bring Tim Brown in and, and Glossop's like, I don't want to call you a liar, Tim, but I didn't say that. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? you know? right. Um. Again, as I mentioned, Sneed had gone back to work with his uh, old roofing crew, and but he was eventually arrested on January 14th, 1997. Now, just to, uh, to kind of beat a dead horse on this one, I think it's really important because Glossop's words are what made him the suspect as having had some part in the murder. Um, I'm going, I want to go through his statements to people and police to kind of it, to kind of, I guess, make it clear exactly why he was a suspect with police from the get-go and why he was a very good suspect for police from the get-go. Um, Billy Hooper, something that Glossop will deny is that he asked her to pay the cable bill with her own money on January 6th so that Barry wouldn't find out that it had been disconnected. So the cable bill for the motel, even though Glossop was supposed to be paying it, was not getting paid. Why do you think that is? Hmm. Maybe because the money to pay the cable bill was going in Glossop's pocket. Yeah, a few questions. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, Glossop will say because Barry didn't want to pay it, but why would, if that was the case, why would Glossop want Billy Hooper to pay the bill so Barry wouldn't find out it got disconnected? Again, dog ate my homework. Yeah, exactly. Kind of thing. Sometimes Glossop's denials don't make any sense. Um, he told Billy Hooper when she got there at 8 or 8.30, uh, which he was also up to help Justin Sneed hang the plexiglass on the outside of room 102, uh, that Barry got up early and had gone to breakfast and was going to get materials. They were going to start working on the motel. And that was on the 7th. Uh, he also told her that Barry rented room 102 to two drunks who broke the window. 
Don't put it on the housekeeping report. He said he and Snead would clean themselves. Um, so he's already at 8.30 in the morning trying to keep people from going near 102. And lying about how the window got broken. Even though, again, we know Snead told him how the window got broken. Uh, at 2.33 p.m., Billy got a call from Wioki Credit Union about finding Barry's car in the parking lot. The car was recognized because he had a, a ham radio operator's personalized license plate with his call sign. And the credit union people apparently knew Barry's car. Uh, Cliff Everhart, um, this was probably all on the 7th. Uh, in the afternoon, because I think Cliff Everhart got there after Glossop returned from Walmart. Um, Glossop appeared to comply with the search of all the rooms. Glossop helped search the area around the motel with Everhart and Deanna. Again, knowing Barry was in 102 dead. Uh, Glossop had a liquidation sale and sold everything he owned. Glossop said he was moving on. Um, Glossop apparently told Everhard that Barry arrived about 2.30 to 3 a.m. from Tulsa and went to bed. Uh, Glossop told Everhard he saw Barry at 7 a.m. when he left the motel to get supplies. Glossop told Everhard he rented room 102 to a couple of drunk cowboys who broke the window. Although the window, he tried to claim later that they broke it from the outside, fighting outside the room. Um, he also told Everhart and Tim Brown that people in an upstairs room could have been responsible for Barry's disappearance since they disappeared without checking out. Um, Donna Vantrese, he spoke to her in the afternoon after they found Barry's car. He may have spoken to her in the morning, though. It's kind of unclear. But again, he told her that he saw Barry between 7 and 7.30 a.m., told uh, that Barry told him he was going to get supplies for the motel and would be back later. Quite a feat. Maybe Glossop had a Ouija board. Uh, he told Donna that Barry looked and sounded fine when he saw him at 7, 7.30 a.m. And Glossop also promised to check all the rooms around the motel to search for Barry. Well, he did check room 102. Uh, Kayla Persley, who was a long-term tenant at the motel, who also worked at Sinclair Gas Station across or right near, right near the property. Um, he told her that two drunks got into a fight and threw a footstool through the window in room 102 and that he and Sneed threw them off the property. He told Kayla Bursley that somebody, somebody got cut cleaning up the glass because I think there was blood on the window or blood on the glass on the outside of the window. Uh, and then he tried to tell her that she saw one of the drunk cowboys at the Sinclair station that morning. So, you know, why would he tell her you saw him when he knew that wasn't how the window got broken again? Right dog ate my homework yeah there's always some some excuse or something that just doesn't make basic sense and uh then jackie williams who was the like housekeeper at the property he told her don't clean the downstairs room that he would clean them with sneed uh so he's trying to keep people from going to room 102 and that was in the morning 
Um, he told Officer Tim Brown that he last saw Barry walking through the motel parking lot at 7 a.m. He uh, told Brown that Sneed told him a couple drunks got into a fight and broke the window and he had to take him off the property. Uh, he said he saw Barry after the window was broken, uh, which a long-term resident heard that at like 4.30 in the morning. Um, then he later told Brown he thought he saw Barry that morning, but he wasn't sure because his glasses were broken and he doesn't see good. Um, and then he also said that everything started getting confused. And the last time he remembered seeing Barry was 8 p.m. the night before when he picked up the payroll money right before he left for Tulsa. Uh, then he later denied saying he saw Barry at 7 a.m. Um, and again, Tim Brown is one of the people that he tried to say that uh, the people in the upstairs room that checked out, that disappeared without checking out, could have been responsible for Derek. Uh, Barry's disappearance so he's trying to keep not only trying to keep people away from 102 he's trying to keep people from suspecting Sneed so um, dog ate my homework yeah he clearly knows something <laughs> so on uh, the 8th after he'd been questioned by police he talked to William Bender who was the manager at the Tulsa Motel he told William Bender that Barry was beaten to a bloody pulp, that he was found cold as ice, dead as a doornail. Uh, Glossop claimed he knew who did it, but he was in fear for his life. He told Bender to get out of the Tulsa Hotel because it's going to be brought down. Uh, he sold his personal property, which he admitted to Bender, and he said he was moving on. Again, like he told Everhart. And he wonders why when he walks out of David McKenzie's office on the 9th, that cops are going to arrest him. Gee. Um, BMO, uh, this is going to come into play later, so I want to go into something. When he was initially interviewed by Detectives BMO or Inspectors BMO and Cook on January 8th, 1997, some things happened that later next week we're going to find don't make sense with what they're claiming now. Okay. Uh, but I won't spoil it. Uh, BMO introduced himself and Cook to Glossop at the beginning of the interrogate or the interview, which gives no indication that either of them know Glossop from Adam. Glossop does not mention or give any indication that he knows BMO or claim or remind BMO that, yeah, I know you, I reported you or I filed a report on you or a complaint against you. And um, again, throughout the interview, there's no sense that BMO knew Glossop or Glossop knew BMO. Um, Glossop gives a little bit of his history. He ran a hotel called the Grand Continental for four years. Uh, then he ran the best budget for two, and he was administered Miranda warnings. Um, Glossop's story is that he called Donna on the 6th looking for Barry because Billy was waiting on her check and was refusing to leave until she was paid. He said the last time he saw Barry was when he left for Tulsa at 7.50 p.m. 
He knew the time because Deanna directed him to look at a clock. At 5 a.m., as he and Deanna were getting ready to go to sleep, he heard tapping on the door and then along the wall. He got up and he opened the door and found Sneed, whom he called Justin Taylor throughout this interview. Now, apparently, Sneed did go by the name Justin Taylor, but I firmly believe Glossop always knew him as Justin Sneed. And so he's giving police an alias used by Justin Sneed, never saying the name Sneed during either of his interviews. Again, he's protecting Sneed. He doesn't want Sneed to get caught because he knows if Sneed gets caught, he's going to be in trouble. And he's trying to convince them he's such a good guy and he, you know, he's a law-abiding citizen and, you know, he doesn't have anything to do with this. And he knows nothing. He's Sergeant fucking Schultz. So, um, again, I'm going to refer to Sneed as Sneed in these statements, but he always claimed it was, his name was Justin Taylor. He never identified him as Justin Sneed. Um, he told them the lie about Sneed telling him the two Bronx broke the window in room 102 and that Sneed ran him off the property. He said he noticed a knot on Sneed's head that Sneed told him happened when he dozed off in the shower and hit his head on the soap dish. Uh, but then he later talks about how the appearance didn't look like something that you would get hitting your head on a soap dish. Um, he says Sneed woke him up at 8 or 8.30 a.m. to help put plexiglass on the outside of the window room 102. He said De he and Deanna went back to bed and he told Billy to wake him at noon. Uh, and again, you know, he knows Barry's dead in room 102. But he goes back to bed and goes back to sleep. Um, he said Billy woke him at around 1 p.m. and they got up got dressed and went to run some errands. They bought glasses. He bought Deanna a ring and they got some construction material supplies at Walmart. Um, they'd picked up blinds, air fresheners and were getting paint when Deanna was paged by Billy. Billy told them Barry was dead, that his car had been found at the Wioki Credit Union. Gloss, Glossop and Deanna, apparently, in spite of having all this shit in their car, they just grabbed the air fresheners, paid for them, and left. Now, why they're grabbing air fresheners, I don't know. Except maybe they're wondering if Barry's body's going to start smelling pretty soon. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's, there's, there's a pretty clear reason why. You know, and, and sometimes with Glossa, what he says, he doesn't realize that he's actually given himself away with some of the things he says, but we'll get but, to yeah. that a little later. Um, and the air fresheners is, is one of them. Yeah. There's a pretty, not that many, I mean, a couple of uses for air fresheners. Yeah. And so even though at this point, he's not admitting to police that Sneed had told him, we know from later statements that he knows Barry's in 102, but he goes searching around the property. Well, that's the searching dumpsters. Again, all these, Cliff, I mean, all of these guys, they they just exhibit very, very strange behavior. That the only way it's explained is if they're involved. Yeah, 
And I'm sure he was probably like at the table with Deanna and Cliff, like, where could he be? Oh, gosh, where could he be? Why would his car be at the credit union? I don't understand. Why would he park at the credit union? Right. You know, I mean, dog ate my fucking homework. Mm -hmm. Um, Sneed disappeared right after he got back from Walmart. At least that's what he told police. Um, Glossop implied that he knew something was wrong when he saw, saw Sneed's head and they found Barry's car. But he, again, insists he knew nothing, had nothing to do with the murder because he was in bed with uh, his girlfriend when Barry was killed. Well, how would he know that? Because he doesn't know anything about it. So how would he know when Barry was killed? Exactly. Um, He said he had a feeling Sneed did it, but then he said he couldn't see Sneed doing it. Or that he didn't see Sneed doing it. And I don't know whether that's, I don't think he's the type to do it, or I just didn't see it. I wasn't there. Um, he told police uh, that uh, Barry picked up nine days of deposits of about 45, 450 a day. Uh, he told them Barry collected 3600 to $4,000 in cash deposits. He admitted seeing Sneed when they got back from Walmart and yelling to him, but claims he had to go inside and talk to Cliff Everhart. That was more important. Um, Glossop recounts for BMO the alleged, there was apparently an issue with the owner of the Grand Continental. At some point, the corporate papers were drawn up in Glossop's name for the hotel, and Glossop's name was put on the bank accounts. And then the owner of the hotel was writing checks and allegedly forging Glossop's name. Um, again, given Glossop's character, I would bet that he and the owner were up in this scheme together. All right. But that when it looked like the, the shit was about to hit the fan, Glossop decided he was yep. going to report it all as fraud. Yep, exactly. Um, but he recounts this to BMO and he doesn't say, well, you were supposed to investigate this and you never did. And I made a complaint against you. Um, he just reports it and says, I had to report it. It went to white collar crime and nothing really ever came of it. Uh, he also said the Grand Continental shut down. And I'm betting that the reason, you know, that he's one of the reasons the Grand Continental shut down and that Everhart then brought him to Van Trees who hired him to manage the best budget in Oklahoma city. Um, and I also get from a couple of other statements that Glossop made to the, to the police. I think he has a very high opinion of himself. And he's one of those manipulative people that's going to think, you know, if he gives you a glass of water, it's like he's cut off his arm and, and done something so great for you. He's donated a kidney to you. And how dare you be ungrateful? Uh, because at one point he's like, I did so much for this man. And, you know, I can't believe I'm in this, I'm in this position. Because he's that kind of manipulative, narcissistic, controlling personality. Um, Glossop, you know, whines and cries and says he makes a good living and that he and Deanna go out and do stupid stuff like buy clothes and she collects purse for perfume and that's all they do. Um, he's like, he doesn't need Barry's money because he makes so much money on his own. Um, 
he tries to say that Sneed stole pennies from a, a long-term resident named Big John because Big John was on vacation. There was a collection of pennies in his room. And during the vacation, Sneed claimed came to Glossop and asked for penny rolls and then started exchanging pennies for quarters for the vending machines. But again, you have somebody there you don't pay for their work. What do you expect them to do? And I still say, I think Glossop got a cut of them pennies. Um, probably for every quarter that Sneed exchanged, Glossop got a quarter in return. Yeah, that makes the most sense that, you know, Glossop was like the godfather of the little motel, you know, managing all the criminals. Mm -hmm. uh, Glossop told the detectives that Sneed had master keys to all the rooms. Um, you know, I think he's trying to, he's trying to direct them towards Sneed without actually saying he confessed to me. Um, now, I did make a mistake. I posted on Twitter that Glossop told police that, that Barry Ventry stayed in 102, and I was mistaken. Glossop tried, even when he's being questioned, to say that wasn't the room Barry preferred. He said Barry stayed in 108 the last time he visited the motel, and that prior to that, he'd stayed in 255 and 229. Um, even though everybody else said Barry liked 102 because it was a little bit nicer room. It had the waterbed and that was easier for him on his back because he'd been in some kind of major car accident and been pretty severely injured and, and had long-term back problems. Um, Glossop said there were waterbeds in 101, 102, and 125. He said that the stereo in 102 was a piece of shit that came out of the laundry room. He said there was the same stereo in room 20, 125. So trying to make it seem like 102 wasn't a really big deal room. When detectives were saying, yeah, but there was a stereo in there. That seems like, you know, if I owned a motel, that would be the room I would want to stay in. Uh, so Glossop's got to make it seem like, you know, 102 wasn't a big deal. Um, he re repeated the claim about Sneed having master keys to all the rooms, implying that he wasn't supposed to have those master keys. And he also said Sneed had deadbolt keys to all the rooms. And motels, usually what happens is they have a deadbolt key that they can use to lock a, a guest out because a guest never gets a key to that room. You can, you can deadbolt it when you're inside the room, but you can't deadbolt it from outside the room. Um, uh, Barry also said that uh, after he came back from Tulsa, Barry had not parked out front, which was unusual. Um, and then he did say he had a hunch Sneed did it, but didn't know for sure. And he claimed that he told Tim Brown uh, that Justin's name was Justin Taylor, even though Brown said he denied knowing Justin's last name. Uh, and that was where he said, I'm not trying to call you a liar, but didn't I tell you, you know, Justin Taylor, as soon as you asked. And then he's like, well, maybe I didn't hear you ask for his name. 
Um, he also made some statements. He knows it's pointing in his direction. Um, he says he, after they found the car, he knew Justin was involved, but he didn't know Barry was actually dead. He claimed he made $750 per month from the vending machines that were his. And in another source that I read, and I don't know whether it was in the clemency packet from the state or, or elsewhere, but there was also apparently an issue of Glossop claiming hotel property was his own. So I'm wondering, I find it kind of unusual that you would bring a manager in and let the manager put vending machines in that he made the money from and not charge him something to have his vending yeah. machines on your property. Yeah, exactly. Um, and as I understand it, usually vending machines on motel properties and school properties are owned by somebody who manages them and, and stocks them. And yep. how do you make 750 a month if you have to stock the machines? Or was Barry Van Tree stocking those machines? You know, um, that's kind of a that's kind of a troubling thing for me. But again, I think he's trying to give the motel, he's trying to give the police the idea that he makes his fifteen hundred a month, and he makes seven fifty a month. So that's over twenty two hundred dollars a month. He doesn't need to steal money from Barry Ventrese. Although, if he and Deanna are spending money, and not saving money, and not keeping money, and I think that they were because Glossop had to take advances that were charged against his, you know later payrolls um may he wasn't making a lot of money or what he was making was just never going to be enough um and he claimed that he told brown that i thought i saw barry and that brown's the only person he told that to so then he leaves they can't hold him they don't have probable cause even though i mean some of these statements are troubling and some of these statements don't, you know, sound quite right. Uh, but they didn't have a confession and they didn't have any probable cause. So they couldn't arrest him. So they let him go and he starts selling things. And um, he tells people he's going to move on, even though apparently to him, that doesn't mean I'm leaving Oklahoma City. It just means I'm leaving the best budget. I'm going to go find a job somewhere else. Maybe because, you know, I've gotten my maintenance guy to kill the manager and the heat's on and I don't want to be around for it. Um, so he's arrested and brought in. They find the $1,700, which we'll talk about the origins of that uh, later. And um, so he's being questioned again by the police. And again, he's trying to say, I'm a good guy. You know, I'm an honest guy. I'm being honest with you now. I'm going to tell you the truth. I did lie. He admits to lying all during the eighth. So where someone says, show me where he lied. Look at, look at January 8th. His entire statement was a lie. Either actual lies or lies of omission. Uh, he claimed that Deanna is the one that told him not to say anything. That, and you know, if he didn't know for sure, he shouldn't say anything, which once again, does not make sense. 
when you're talking to police about somebody that got killed, they're the people that really determine what happened. It's their job. So whatever you know is to help them determine what really happened. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, 100%. And so why would your girlfriend say, don't say anything to anybody? Yeah, absolutely. And all these little details, everything taken together, his behavior, everything he reports, his lies, none of it makes sense. None of it makes sense if you're innocent. Yeah. Uh, He also tried to throw shade at Cliff Everhart by saying he thinks he had something to do with it. Uh, He admitted that he didn't tell the truth in his interview on the 8th because he didn't want to lose Deanna, uh, which, I mean, I guess because she told him not to say anything. So if he talked to police, she was going to dump him. Yeah, I'll totally Um, totally risk going to jail, getting the death penalty for murder because I don't want to lose my girlfriend. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, And she's the love of his life. And, you know, this is this is what this is what a loser. Well, he's not really a loser. This is what a narcissist that Glossop is. Every woman is the love of his life. Yeah. He she's the one. Until she's not. Right. Yeah, um, she's probably going to break up with you if you go to death row. Just yeah. Unless you're uh, that Leah girl that's married him recently. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he denied that Barry had ever told him that he had to get any money because, you know, they're saying William Bender doesn't know you. Why is he, why is he saying these things? He's like, I don't know. But Barry never told me I had to get any money. Barry never told me you know, anything he he and I were going to fix up the motel. That doesn't sound like he's going to fire me if we're going to fix up the motel. It's kind of like the, um, again, dog ate my homework. Why would Barry tell me these things if he's telling these people this? That doesn't make sense. Well, that's because you're lying through your fucking teeth. That's why it doesn't make sense. Um, He says that Barry, he says that Ken, Barry's brother told, Glossop that Barry said he was a good guy. Well, maybe Barry did think you were a good guy at one time until you started robbing him blind. Well, yeah, he had to think he was pretty good. He wouldn't have hired him to run his property. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he also told police that a woman named Carol, uh, who was apparently a Vantree's family member who had been around the hotel, was the one that told him to go get an attorney. So even this, you know, again, uh, Deanna twisted his arm and told him not to talk to police or not to, at least if he talked to them, not to tell him anything of substance. And then this woman, Carol, is the one who made him go out and talk to David McKenzie. And then when he talked to David McKenzie, McKenzie said he didn't want to hear the whole truth because he didn't want to know. I dog ate my homework. Um, so Glossop was arrested on uh, January 9th, 1997 by the o- Oklahoma City Police Department. And it's hilarious. In the end of that interview, he's like, I'm not going to run. I'm not going to run. I've got nowhere to go. Uh, and interestingly enough, he says Sneed told him when he admitted to killing Barry, he said he did it because he did he didn't want Barry to see the rooms because if Barry saw the rooms, he was going to get fired. And I think that that's really Glossop's 
part of Glossop's motive. I think Glossop's motive was multiple things, but what made it crucial that Barry die on the 7th was that either he was going to call the police about the missing money or he was going to fire Glossop and Glossop had nowhere to go when he saw the rooms. And as the manager of the motel, the rooms are on him 100%. Right. Because he's the one, and, and the whole condition, the deplorable state of the motel, that's on Glossop. He says, I cleaned it up, I made it so nice, but it was a shithole in 1997. In January 1997. You didn't clean anything up and make anything nice. You ran off anybody that didn't want to play ball with you, maybe. But your drug dealer brother was there. That's not cleaning up a motel. He says he ran off all the prostitutes, but you know his current defenders claim there was a lot of prostitution activity going on at the motel. And they imply that Barry Van Trees was allowing it to go on. So they're calling you a liar, Richard. Um, he was initially indicted as an accessory after the fact because his statement to police and his inconsistent statements to other witnesses really made it sound more like he knew about the murder and just covered it up to protect Sneed. Oh, and he, like I said, he claimed he wasn't protecting Sneed. He was protecting himself to avoid losing Deanna. Uh, but his charge was after Barry, after Sneed was arrested, identified as Justin Sneed and arrested and brought in for questioning on January 14th. Then they knew that Glossop was, as they suspected, involved. Uh, now, it's interesting also, he... He admitted to police on the 8th that he knew things were pointing in his direction and he knew he was in it. And at one point, he even said to police that he didn't go in room 102 because he didn't want his fingerprints anywhere. Now, why would an innocent person say, I didn't want my fingerprints anywhere? Exactly. Innocent person doesn't say stuff like that. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. I know I keep beating a dead horse, but like, Innocent people don't keep, there's so many of the hundred things he says that innocent people just don't say. Yeah. So um, the state filed a bill of particulars, which in, in Oklahoma procedure, the bill of particulars are the aggravating factors that the state is going to seek to prove to seek the death penalty. Um, and again, like I said, he was indicted uh, initially for accessory, but they uh, upgraded that, amended that to first-degree murder. Uh, initially, his first trial and direct appeal, he was represented by Wayne Fornerat at trial and G. Lynn Birch and Matthew Hare on appeal. Uh, and I think they were with the Oklahoma Indigent Defender Service. On July 31st, 1998, he was convicted and sentenced to death. His petition was uh, in error, was filed for appeal on February 1st, 1999. On October 28th, 1999, there was a destruction of evidence. A property transfer report was issued by the DA's office to the PD, noting that appeals had been exhausted. Well, we know 
that Snead had pled guilty. Glossop had been convicted after trial and, and his case was on appeal. So the appeals exhausted statement was wrong. Um, and it ordered the destruction of the evidence being held by the police department or being held by the DA's office and being transferred back to the police department. Um, to date, nobody has identified who at the DA's actually issued or signed the order. We know who received it and processed it at the PD's office or the police department, but we don't know who had, was involved at the DA's office. And apparently in 1999, there was no system set up to correct a potential mistake like this and keep it from happening. Uh, so on the 10th of November, the box was marked for destruction and apparently destroyed. It contained some physical evidence. It contained some financial records. It contained the shower curtain. It contained the glass found in room 102. It contained uh, duct tape found in room 102. So, I mean, some of the physical evidence. I think, though, that everything had been subjected to testing as much as possible, and nothing either exculpatory or inculpatory had been developed. Um, I find it unlikely that Glossop was ever going to seek to test any of the evidence with DNA testing because of the potential of finding his DNA and thereby corroborating Sneed's statements. And his best argument is nothing connects me from a physical evidence standpoint. So, but that did happen. Um, Glossop's direct appeal continued, um, briefing was done, and the case was actually remanded on ineffective assistance of counsel claims, were remanded to the trial court for a hearing. The judge had her hearing. She issued her findings of fact and conclusions of law. Supplemental briefing was done. And then the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals on July 17, 2001, reversed and remanded Glossop's case for a new trial based on pervasively ineffective manner in which Glossop was represented at trial, which prejudiced him. Uh, the court also found kind of indicted that the corroborating evidence of Sneed's testimony was weak. Uh, the finding of the court was that the uh, counsel failed to effectively cross-examine or use potent impeachment evidence during Sneed's testimony, that counsel presented an ill-prepared, incomprehensible defense, and failed to review reports available to him and failed to have his alternate suspect testify. And actually, there's an alternate suspect that wasn't Justin Sneed that Fornerat and Glossop were pointing at during his first trial. So I think Fornerat was attempting to actually say it wasn't even Justin Sneed, it was this other guy. Because that he felt like if he could get Justin Sneed's entire statement found false. Hmm? 
Pardon? Kyle, uh, Kyle's having some technical difficulties. Oh, sorry. I'm back now. No, I apologize. Okay. I thought <laughs> That's I was okay. Getting, I think I was having a little bit of weird internet stuff. Oh, okay. I thought you were asking a question. Um, so, yeah, apparently Fornerat's strategy was have uh, Sneed's entire confession and testimony uh, against Glossop determined to be false because somebody else killed Barry Ventrice. Um, and they found that counsel failed to prepare for trial and the mistakes made were not part of any trial strategy. So, um, and this is an example of, because one of the claims that they're alleging recently is that his second trial, the attorneys were ineffective because they didn't do all these things. But if that were true, then why wouldn't the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals have reversed that conviction as well? Uh, because they did when Fornerat was ineffective. Um, his second trial went back to Oklahoma County. Uh, he was going to be tried by Judge Twala Mason Gray, who was the judge who uh, conducted the hearings and was apparently the judge in that division by that point he was represented by silas lyman and wayne woodard um which glossop is claiming the same attorneys who represented him in his first direct appeal represented him at his second trial and that's totally untrue um, they were members of the oklahoma indigent defender uh service but they were not involved in his first direct appeal and then on direct appeal, he was represented by Janet Chesley and Kathleen Smith, again, also Oklahoma. And the indigent defendant service, I think they have the trial attorneys and they have the appellate attorneys who specialize in trial and appeal work. Um, in January 16th of 2003, a hearing was held in, in the trial court, at which time Fern Smith informed the court and the defense counsel about the destruction of the evidence in that box on November 10th, 1999. There were motion hearings on June 17th, 2002, June 26, 2002, and June 27, 2002. Um, those may have been ones to seek, uh, it may have been to seek access to that evidence i don't know because the motions aren't really it's not really clear from the docket what they were about uh, and those two pieces are also out of order sorry about that and then uh on october 29 2003 uh, apparently the da's office had investigated and um connie smother smotherman the da who was then assigned to the case um, emailed Glossop's attorneys and said, I am not aware of any policy authorizing the destruction of evidence from our office. Um, so again, I, there's not a lot of information about this, but the defense was well aware of it prior to Glossop's trial and none of the motions after, no, there were, uh, 
don't appear to have been any motions after 2003 seeking to, you know, get the indictment thrown out or reduce the charge or or dismiss the claims altogether based on this destruction of evidence. It's unlikely, again, that um, that would have been done anyway, while it could be used strategically to make the case look weak to a jury. Realistically, I don't think that Glossop's team would have wanted to test any of that evidence anyway. And anybody saying there would have been certain evidence developed from that evidence is full of crap because that's all speculative. Um, because it didn't develop any evidence inculpatory toward Glossop and it didn't really develop any evidence that was actually exculpatory to him because the absence of his fingerprints or DNA isn't it isn't exculpatory in a situation where he arranged for someone else to commit the murder um and if you'll notice I'm not relying on Justin Sneed's statements Besides the bare minimum of the fact that Sneed said Glossop came to him, said he has to die. And now he's dead and they split the money that they found in the car, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But anyway, so the second trial, um, the bill of particulars filed to seek the death penalty again was murder for remuneration or promise of remuneration or employing another to commit the murder for remuneration or offer of remuneration, and that the defendant will likely commit criminal acts of violence that constitute a continuing threat. Um, those were kind of the same bill of particulars from the first trial. The second trial, the state was represented by Connie Smotherman and Gary Ackley. Uh, again, Gloss was represented by Lyman and Woodard. Jury selection was conducted between May 10th, 2004, and May 13th, 2004. The state's case was conducted between May 13th and June 1st, 2004. The defense presented evidence, uh, probably not a whole lot, um, on June 1st, 2004. And um, again, because the primary evidence against Glossop was his own statements in addition to the gaps filled in by Sneed's statement. Um, the jury uh, closing arguments were made and the jury got the case at 4.55 p.m. They deliberated until 10.15 p.m. And then they came back with a first-degree malice murder uh, conviction. The penalty phase was between June 2nd and June 3rd. At 1.45 p.m., uh, the defense put on its evidence uh, the, the afternoon of June 2nd, and that was, you know, members of Glossop's family testified. They put on any evidence that they thought would mitigate the aggravating factors um, to convince the jury to spare Glossop's life, and uh, the state presented some victim impact statements but 
a factor that the jury can also consider is the evidence at trial. And that can serve to show the aggravating factors to prove the aggravating factors for a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and that's, I think, what the state in this particular case relied on more than anything else was the manner in which Barry Ventrice was murdered, the getting Justin's need to do the murder, Justin's needs reliance on Glossop. Because Glossop admits um, in his June 9th, his January 9th statement that, you know, Steen never had any money. And so Glossop had to buy him food, bought him cigarettes, all these things. Um, and I, I had that in my notes and I think I forgot to type that stuff out. And it looks like we've lost Kyle. Uh, hopefully he'll be back soon. Um, the jury deliberated. The closing arguments were, were made by the state and defense on June 3rd. The jury deliberated from 1.45 to 6.30 p.m. and then came back and found Glossop, uh, sentenced Glossop to death or recommended that Glossop be sentenced to death. Um, now, there was one incident, apparently, at some point during the trial, and it's not really clear exactly when it was, um, a close family friend of Judge, of Judge Gray died suddenly and probably quite unexpectedly. And after that happened, Judge Gray actually told the jury, you'll see me get teary-eyed, but it has nothing to do with this case. It's because a family friend died and I apologize. You know, that's, I, I'm, I'm trying to do my best to control my emotions, but it's very tough. It's very difficult. Um, Glossop's attorneys never raised a, an issue. They never raised an objection. They never put it on the record that the judge was crying during any presentation of evidence or any um, part of the case. And they, um, they didn't complain about uh, this display of emotion on Judge Gray's part. So, um, after his conviction, he was formally sentenced on August 27, 2004, and then began his appeal. And welcome back, Kyle. Yeah, sorry about that. I think my battery died. <laughs> oh no, on your on your laptop? Yeah, I thought I had plenty of time. I'd been I had been uh, charging it overnight. It just died. See, I I've always left my laptops plugged in. I've never operated them on a battery because even even out the box, I've always found they only get like three or four hours. Not right. No warning either. It was just like done. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm done. Goodbye. All right. Well, welcome back. Uh, I've went through the trial. Glossop was convicted and sentenced to death. And I mentioned there was a, a time during the trial when someone, a family friend of, of Judge Gray died and Gray had some difficulty controlling her emotions for a day or two uh, after that event. She explained that to the jury and, and told the jury it has nothing to do with the case. Um, and Glossop's attorneys didn't complain. They didn't uh, request a mistrial. They didn't put anything on the record or, or raise any issue as to this uh, show of emotion by the judge. 
So um, that is, and there was also during deliberations, either guilt and innocence or, or death penalty, the uh, deliberations had exceeded the time that the jurors could park wherever they were parked. And so they were taken <laughs> to the parking lot to move their cars. I guess oh maybe my gosh. they were in a, only in Oklahoma. They were in a lot that was going to close down and lock up. And so they had to move their cars <laughs> out to the street or something like that. And and it actually had happened during uh, Charles Warner's trial. The same thing had happened. Um, so that was also a, an event that occurred. Um, so he was represented by uh, Janet Chesley and Kathleen Smith on appeal. Um, Drew Edmondson and Seth Branham were the attorneys for the state. Uh, initially, his appeal, his first appellate request, there was some flaw or some problem. And so the initial appeal was transferred to a new 2005 appeal number and he refiled his petitions in error and refiled uh uh his certificates of appeal um it may have been that he actually filed something out of time and was given by the oklahoma court of criminal appeals the opportunity to uh continue a direct appeal so again for a system that supposedly has it in for Glossop, he certainly is getting a second chance when there's a mistake, whether it was his own or attributable to him. Um, so he pursued his direct appeal. He got three extensions of time to file his brief. Uh, on his fourth, uh, or rather he got two extensions of time on his third request, he was ordered, his attorney was ordered to come in and show cause as to why she couldn't file the, the brief on time. He was granted a third extension of time. He applied for an evidentiary hearing on his Sixth Amendment claims related to uh, assistance of counsel. Um, he got his brief filed. The state was granted two extensions of time and then filed their brief. He was able to file a reply brief. Uh, oral argument was set. And the case was argued in 2006. Uh, he filed a supplemental authority. And then on April 13, 2007, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals issued its opinion. And um, some of the issues he raised were Insufficiency of the evidence to convict because Sneed's testimony was not sufficiently corroborated. That the state presented irrelevant and highly prejudicial evidence during this first stage of trial to elicit sympathy for the victim and Sneed. That demonstrative, demonstrative aids were used by the state to overly emphasize portions of witness testimony and the court erred in refusing to include those. Uh, they were posters in the court record. Um, they argued in prosecu prosecutorial misconduct, uh, that's proposition four, that the prosecutor offered arguments that misrepresented facts and misled the jury 
regarding the absence of Glossop's fingerprints in room 102, that only Glossop had motive, that the accessory after the fact offense raised by Glossop was baseless, that there was improper character evidence used to elicit sympathy for the victim in Sneed, that only the Oklahoma City Motel had shortages or had financial trouble, and only Glossop was going to be fired, and implied additional evidence implicating Glossop existed during the testimony of Kayla Persley, and also that the prosecutor misstated the law and injected personal opinion during the penalty phase. Proposition five, he argued that his counsel was ineffective for failing to use Sneed's interrogation during cross-examination of Sneed and Inspector Bemo, that readily available evidence was not used on cross-examination of Sneed, that financial records were not used on cross-examination to impeach Donna Vantrese, that his attorneys failed to object to the evidence admitted in Proposition 2, and that the, uh, his defense failed to object to the uh, prosecutorial misconduct of Proposition 4. And then finally, oh wait, no, not finally, Sneed's self-serving testimony was insufficient to support the murder for remuneration aggravator that jury instructions defining the jury's roles were flawed, that there was improper victim impact evidence admitted when Barry's widow and daughters, or one daughter was permitted to read statements from other family members, that the trial court abused its discretion in removing jurors for cause and used the wrong method to determine whether jurors could impose the death penalty by using incorrect language in uh, questioning the jurors, and that the trial court also abused its discretion when it removed a juror serving a deferred sentence after a criminal conviction. And then the final proposition was the challenge to the use of an in-life photograph of Barry Van Treese, arguing that that statute, that Oklahoma statute was unconstitutional and the relevance of the photograph was outweighed by its danger of harm. Um, the findings of the, the court were pretty strong on the evidence or the sufficiency of the evidence claim. They found that there was both direct and circumstantial evidence supporting Glossop's conviction. The most compelling corroboration of Sneed's testimony that it found was the money in Glossop's possession at the time of his arrest. There was no evidence presented by Glossop that Sneed had any independent knowledge of the money under Barry's car seat. And remember, um, Sneed moved the car to the credit union, took the money from under the seat, brought it back to Glossop, and Glossop split it between them. That's Sneed's story. Again, I didn't rely a lot on that because Glossop dug his own hole or dug his own grave, but um, that is what Sneed said. And again, they never presented any evidence that Sneed knew about the money. And if Sneed knew about the money and committed the murder, why would he take it back to Glossop and split it with him? Dog ate my homework. You know, um, it makes no sense for Sneed to do that. He would have just said, well, the money wasn't there. I don't know where it was. Yeah, exactly. uh, and neither one of the morons knew about the $23,000 in the trunk of Antrese's car. Because apparently, uh, and this was addressed at trial, even though they will claim that nobody knows about that money or why that was there, uh, Van Treese apparently kept 
cash to deal with paying bills and paying expenses for the motels and their personal home expenses. Um, so he kept that money in the car and it was, it was sorted and organized for, you know, paying motel bills, paying home bills, etc. Donovan trees testified to all that at the trial, but apparently Glossop didn't know that there was $23,000 because if Glossop had known he would have told Snead to take that money too. Yeah, absolutely. And then maybe he that would have been have more than town. that would have been at least a year of his salary, right? Yeah, probably about. Um, Glossop's action after the murder also shed light on his guilt. The state presented sufficient evidence to show that Glossop feared that he was going to be fired as manager because the motel accounts had shortages during the end of 1996. Everhard had told Barry that he thought Glossop was pocketing a couple hundred extra every week during the last quarter of 1996. Billy Hooper shared her concerns about the motel with Barry, who told her that he knew he had to take care of things. The condition of the motel at the time of Barry's death was deplorable. Only half of the rooms were habitable. The entire motel was filthy. Uh, Glossop was a person responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of the motel, and he knew that he would be blamed for the motel's condition. His motive, along with evidence that he actively concealed Barry's body from discovery, as well as his plans to move on, connect him with the commission of this crime, according to the, to, to the appellate court. Evidence that a defendant attempted to conceal a crime and evidence of attempted flight support an inference of consciousness of guilt, either of which can corroborate an accomplice's testimony. We've also got his first you know, statement to police where he lied and covered up what he knew because Sneed told him at five o'clock in the morning that he killed Barry. Um, the state also presented enormous amount of evidence that Glossop concealed Barry's body from investigators all day long, and he lied about the broken window. He admitting that knowing, knowing that Sneed killed Barry in room 102, he knew about the broken glass. However, he told no one that he thought Sneed was involved in the murder until after he was taken into custody after Barry's body was found. He intentionally lied by telling people that Barry had left early that morning to get supplies. In fact, Barry was killed hours before Glossop had claimed to have seen him that morning. Glossop's stories about when he last saw Barry were also inconsistent. He first said he saw him at 7 a.m. Later, he said he saw him at 4.30 a.m. Finally, he said he last saw him at 8 p.m. the night before Barry's death, and he denied making other statements regarding the time he last saw Barry. Glossop also intentionally lied intentionally steered everyone away from room 102. He told Billy Hooper that Barry left to get materials and that Barry stayed in room 108 the night before. He told Jackie Williams, a housekeeper, not to clean any downstairs room, which included room 102. He said that he and Sneed would clean the downstairs rooms. He told a number of people that two drunken cowboys broke the window and he tried to implicate a person who was observed at the nearby Sinclair station as one of those cowboys. He told Everhart that he would search the rooms for Barry, and then he told Sneed to search the rooms. No other person searched the rooms until 17 hours after the murder when Barry's body was discovered. The next day, Glossop began selling all of his belongings before he admitted that he actively concealed Barry's body. He told Everhart he was going to be moving on. He failed to show up for an appointment with investigators, 
So the police had to take him in custody for the second interview where he admitted to actively concealing Barry's body. He said he lied about Sneed, telling him about killing Barry, not to protect Sneed, but he felt like he was involved in it. Now, Glossop had argued on appeal that all that evidence proved at best that he was an accessory after the fact. But despite that claim, a defendant's actions after a crime can prove him guilty of the offense. Evidence showing consciousness of guilt has been used many times. Here, all of the evidence taken together amounts to sufficient evidence, first, to corroborate Sneed's story about Glossop's involvement in the murder, and second, the su evidence sufficiently ties Glossop to the commission of the offense so that the conviction is supported. Um, and it's important to note, under these circumstances, Glossop did not have to wield the bat. Glossop did not have to be in the room. Glossop did not have to physically harm or kill Barry Ventrice. He directed Sneed to do it. He offered Sneed money in order to do it. And ultimately, he paid Sneed with Barry's own money, which he kept half of. Because when they split that money from under the car seat, that was Sneed's payment. And anybody here, well, it was less than he offered him 7000 He offered 10000 It doesn't matter. If Sneed didn't want to lie and say there was no money under the seat to get the whole 4000 you know, that's on Sneed. If he's getting less right. than Glossop promised him, that's on Sneed. Exactly. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Um, it, it, you know, it's just, that's the way it goes. And, um, you know, it's kind of like in, in the Dahlia DiPolito case, she offered initially to have the hitman kill Mike DiPolito at the bank and take $10,000 from him to pay for the, to pay for the homicide. So no, she didn't give the hitman any money, but the hitman had the promise of ten thousand dollars on Mike DiPolito's dead body. Right. That he could take for payment. Yeah. So awesome. uh, that's called promise of payment. Um, the court went on, and in Proposition Two, they found that Glossop's counsel failed to object to much of the evidence complained of. Uh, therefore, they reviewed for uh, plain error. And found none. The testimony about Barry and the family tragedies that befell the Vantrices was relevant to show why Donna became concerned about Barry on January 7th and why he was not involved in the day-to-day -day operation of the motel and how the motel could slip into the state of disrepair that existed on, on January 7th, 1997. Also, evidence that Barry was a ham radio operator was relevant because it was a ham radio operator operator's personalized license plate that identified his car um, as to proposition three the court in reviewing the entire record could not say that the posters affected the outcome of the trial both sides used poster and they found any error to be harmless um, now in in the concurring and dissenting opinions some of the judges weren't real happy with the trial judge's refusal to make the posters a part of the court record. But they couldn't really argue with the main outcome that the, the posters caused no harm 
because in reality, the, the defense didn't object to the use of the posters and they utilized posters themselves. Um, they also never claimed that any of the statements on the posters were false. They merely claimed that the posters were around and that it enabled witnesses to tailor their testimony or it constituted constant argument before the jury. Neither of which were ever proven by, say, a, an affidavit from a juror that said, yeah, those posters, you know, I, I used those. I looked at those the whole trial. Um, they, as to four, they also found the prosecutorial misconduct allegations were not preserved. So their review was for plain error uh, again. Um, they found as to the first uh, allegation, and I'm going to look back and see what that was, um, on 4A, about the absence of fingerprints in room 102, that as a manager of the motel and a person who was responsible for repairs, in every room, it was suspicious that none of Glossop's fingerprints were found in the room, um, that that was a fair inference from the evidence. The prosecutor was not arguing that Glossop had selectively removed fingerprints after the crime, but was arguing that the absence of his fingerprints in the room, even ones that might have been left un under innocent circumstances, was unusual, and they found no plain error. Um, the complaints regarding their argument as to Glossop's motive, the state was arguing that Sneed had no reason to kill Barry other than the offer of money from Glossop. Uh, again, that was a fair inference from the evidence because Glossop presented no evidence that Sneed had an independent motive or independent knowledge of the, the, the money under the seat of the car or in the car. So they found no plain error. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's no reason for Snead to have killed him. Yeah. Uh, as to the complaints regarding the uh, comments on the accessory after the fact defense raised by Glossop or arguments made by Glossop, the court found that while the state initially charged Glossop with accessory to the murder and Snead with murder, the state dismissed the accessory information and added Glossop as co-defendant with Snead to the murder information. That was not plain error. And the argument based on that was not plain error. Um, the issue uh, as to objection to the evidence had been, um, I'm sorry. Okay. D was the improper character evidence, and that was re resolved with Proposition 2 as far as what was admitted about very Ventrice. The fact that the Ventrice has discussed firing both managers at Oklahoma City and Tulsa was not in conflict with the fact that they were going to fire Glossop first, move Bender to Oklahoma City, and then take, uh, to take Glossop's place while managers were sought for both motels. And so they found his complaints about the prosecutorial comments about the condition of the Oklahoma City motel had no merit. Um, 
the state's the complaint of questioning of Kayla Persley in um, the next allegation was to rebut the defense's cross-examination where counsel brought up the fact that she testified to things not in the police report because she remembered these things after she talked to police. Prosecutor was merely attempting to show that Persley was testifying from her memory and not from the police report. The fact that the jury was deprived of this evidence due to lack of memory was not indicative of more evidence damaging Glossop. The claim does not rise to the level of plain error. And um, then finally, the prosecutor's arguments at the penalty phase were proper comments on the evidence in order to show that based on the circumstances of the crime, Glossop was a continuing threat to society. Obviously, the jury did not accept the prosecutor's argument because they did not find that Glossop was a continuing threat. Um, the ineffective assistance of counsel claims, basically, Glossop has to show that the attorney's performance was deficient and it prejudiced Glossop. Isn't that basically uh, automatic? Like, doesn't every defendant? Yeah, every, every. Because if you lost, it's ineffective counsel. Correct. And that's that's what Glossop's arguing. And that's and that's common. I mean, in the West Memphis three case, I saw people on yeah. the supporter side say uh, the evidence was so, uh, so weak that they had to be ineffective in order to lose. Yeah. If you lose, it's bad. Yeah. Count. Uh, but in reality, uh, in the court, you have to prove both deficient performance and prejudice by that performance, because sometimes a mistake can be a part of valid trial strategy, like at, you know, calling a witness that ends up saying things that are damaging on cross-examination, but you needed to call that witness to get your case or your evidence in on direct. Um, the court went on to say that there's a strong presumption that counsel's conduct falls within the wide range of reasonable professional conduct, and an appellant must overcome that presumption uh, that under the circumstances, counsel's conduct constituted trial strategy. To establish prejudice, Glossop must show that there's a reasonable probability, sorry, that but for counsel's unprofessional errors, the result of the proceeding would have been different. Um, the court's examination of Glossop's claim, claim in the context of the entire trial record led them to rule that any misconduct that might have occurred did not affect the outcome of the case. So there could be no ineffective assistance counsel. And basically they did, they reviewed the entire record and you know, even if the attorney didn't object to the prosecutorial misconduct, sometimes there are valid reasons not to object. You don't want to call attention to something. So you don't make it look like a bigger deal to the jury. Um, so them failing to object to some of the prosecutor's comment. And sometimes, you know, trial is, um, you got to be fast on your feet. And sometimes if you're not quite fast enough, you miss your chance to lodge an objection. Or you know it's objectionable, but you don't know exactly how. And in order to prevail on the objection, you have to tell the judge why. 
And so you have to just let it go. Um, but, uh, and sometimes you'll, you'll lodge an objection and you'll cite a reason and you lose. And then later on you think, oh, well, I should have said this. Um, but you know, you can't re-argue it. The moment has passed. Uh, in proposition six, the court found Glossop's argument that Sneed murdered Barry so that he could steal money from his car was flawed because no murder needed to occur for Sneed to take money from Barry's car. There was sufficient evidence presented that Glossop promised to pay Sneed to kill Barry because Glossop knew there would be money under the seat. A simple burglary of the automobile would have resulted in the fruits of the supposed desire. The fact is that Glossop was not after money. He wanted Barry dead and was willing to pay Sneed to do the dirty work. He knew that Sneed would do it for the mere promise of a large payoff, and there was no evidence that Sneed had any independent knowledge of this money. And to this day, Glossop has failed to ever produce any evidence or testimony that Sneed knew there was money under the seat of Barry Ventry's car. His attorneys have presented some speculation and they've declared this, but they've never presented any independent evidence that anybody but Glossop would know there was money under the car. And the reason Glossop would know, as he told police, when Barry would come and collect money, Glossop would walk him to the car. And Glossop would watch him leave to make sure nothing happened. So Glossop would have observed him placing the money under the seat of the car. Simple. Sneed was never involved in that process. And there's no evidence that Sneed was involved in that process. As to the allegations regarding jury uh, instructions, the trial court gave the uniform instructions on mitigating evidence uh, as well as others and um, so the court would not chose not to revisit the issue because they've, they've analyzed these instructions and determined their appropriateness and they're not going to go back and, and reanalyze that, that, that complaint. Um, the, as to the victim impact evidence, the trial counsel did object to the evidence in pretrial motions and hearings. During the second stage, an in-camera hearing was held and the parties went through the statements and defense counsel made objections to some of the language and that was redacted by the trial court. However, counsel specifically stated that he had no objection to the two witnesses, Donna and her daughter, Barry, reading the statements of the remaining immediate family members. Therefore, any claim regarding the method of victim impact evidence presented is waived except that error, which is plain error. And they found that Glossop was not harmed by the state's utilization of two family members to read the statement of five other family members. And the court was not going to second guess trial counsel's sound trial strategy and found no pl plain uh, error. Um, the as to the jurors being struck by the court, 
two were unable to consider the death penalty as a punishment. The Glossop's trial attorneys did not object to their removal. And the law does not require, due process does not require that their inability to consider the death penalty be established on the record with some formula that, you know, can, can be looked at later on. Um, the first juror was unequivocal that she could not oppose the death penalty. The second expressed concern, vacillated back and forth, but ultimately stated that she could not consider the death penalty equally with the two life in prison options, life and life without parole. Based on the entire voir dire, the court did not abuse its discretion in removing these two jurors. It also did not abuse its discretion in removing a prospective juror serving a deferred criminal sentence. And even the juror felt that she was not the right person for a criminal jury. So uh, once again, Glossop's raising a, a complaint about something that has no merit. Um, and, and most of this had no merit. But it was raised and it was argued and, and the court ultimately determined that it had no merit. That's what appellate courts do. Glossop bears a burden of proving allegations regarding constitutionality of the uh, victim, uh, the statement, the photograph statute. And the court found no abuse of discretion in admitting a single in-life photo of Barry. And the court, again, declined to overturn its prior rulings upholding that statute. The court also conducted a mandatory sentence review and found that there was sufficient evidence to support the finding of the statutory aggravating circumstance of murder for remuneration. After reviewing the entire record, they found the sentence of death was not imposed because of any arbitrary factor, passion, or prejudice. Glossop presented mitigating evidence, which was summarized and listed in an instruction to the jury, and it included his lack of prior criminal activity, the, his age of 41 years, his emotional and family history, that he had been incarcerated since his arrest and had not posed a threat to other inmates or detention staff, that he was amenable to a prison setting and would pose little rest, risk in such structured settling, that he had family who loved him and valued his life, <coughs> that he had a limited education and did not graduate from high school, that he had average intelligence or above and received a GED, that after leaving school, he had been continuously gainfully employed from the age of 16 to his arrest on Ju January 9th, 1997, that he could contribute to prison society and be an assistance to others, that he had no history of aggression prior to his arrest. And I kind of wonder whether he actually just had never gotten caught or reported that he was not present when Barry Ventries was killed and they had no significant drug or alcohol abuse history. In addition, the trial court instructed that the jury could decide that other mitigating circumstances exist and they could consider them as well. Uh, so honestly, they said the jury's verdict was not born under the influence of passion, prejudice, or any other arbitrary factor, and the evidence supported the jury's findings of the aggravating circumstances under Oklahoma statute. Glossop's convictions and sentences should be affirmed. They found no 
error warranting reversal of his conviction at, or his sentence of death for first-degree murder. Uh, the concurrence, again, there were two concurrences. Um, the second one concurred in the result but objected to the citation of case law from other states regarding the trial court's refusal to preserve the demonstrative exhibits. Uh, the dissent uh, strongly agreed with the, strongly disagreed with the majority's opinion of challenge to accomplice corroboration evidence. And on three, the trial court's decision over defense objection to allow the court, the, the, the DA to post summaries of witness testimony throughout the courtroom and leave the exhibits visible to juror and later's witnesses. Um, that dissenter also performed an analysis of the money possessed by Glossop on uh, December, on January 9th, 1997, when he was arrested. Um, and this is interesting because it found that $12,000, $1,200 that Glossop possessed could not be accounted for. Um, it found that he received on January 6th his paycheck in the amount of $429.33. They cashed the check, paid a 10% fee on January 7th. That would have left $386.40. They went shopping and spent $172 on a pair of glasses, $107.73 on an engagement ring, and $45 at Walmart. These purchases would have left Glossop with only $61.67 from his paycheck. It's also, it can be reasonably inferred from the evidence that Glossop was very low on cash before being paid because earlier in the day on January 6th, he took a $20 advance from the hotel against the paycheck he was about to receive to get through the day. In addition, Glossop's girlfriend told an investigator that they lived paycheck to paycheck and that she did not think Glossop was able to save any money. The state also had presented evidence at trial that Barry Ventrice would have had $3,500 to $4,000 in cash in his possession based on hotel receipts. Uh, pardon that, that's an alarm on my phone going off and it's on the other side of the room. So it's going to just keep going off. I can't even hear it. Okay, I didn't even good. hear it. Probably me, my <laughs> Anybody that's hearing the Imperial March, that's that's yeah. If anybody's on. hearing that, you have better hearing than me. Yeah. Uh Justin Sneed testified that the envelope he found under the front seat of Vantrice's car, where Glossop told him to look, contained approximately four thousand dollars in cash, which Glossop split evenly with between himself and Sneed. Um, when Sneed was arrested, he had no regular source of income. He was apprehended a week later and he had 1680 in cash in a drawer in a Crown Royal bag in the apartment where he was staying. So um, that's interesting. Now, I think that may have been in response to an allegation by Glossop in his appellate brief that he took advances to save money so that Deanna wouldn't know about it. And basically, 
the argument was he would take these advances and he would squirrel that money away. He would pay the advances back when he got paid. And then Deanna would only have the reduced paycheck to, to spend. That doesn't make a damn bit of sense. Because if you're going to save money, you don't borrow money to save money. You don't go out and take out a loan and put it in a savings account. Yeah, exactly. You borrow it to pay a bill, to catch up on bills, to buy a car, to buy a house, you know. Uh, it just, it, that's not the way finance works. Um, Glossop's never presented any evidence that supports that argument. That was just the one his attorneys on direct appeal came up with. Um, the, uh, on May 3rd, 2007, Glossop filed a petition for rehearing. And let me pause it because this is driving me crazy. Um, I'm going to pause. All right. And we are back. Thank you for your patience. I apologize for that, for anyone that heard the Imperial March. And the funny thing about Samsung phones, even if you mute them for these alarms, they unmute themselves. If I don't know if you knew that about a Samsung phone. So, um, oh, yeah, I, I have one for work. I live with it all the time. <laughs> And I, I thought I had canceled the alarms for today because my phone was on the charger on the other side of the room and I knew I wasn't going to be able to stop the alarms when they went off, but apparently I missed one. So uh, Glossop did file for rehearing and a motion to stay the mandate uh, that was denied. The mandate issued on June 1st, 2007. Um, he was granted an extension of time to file a writ at the United States Supreme Court, which he did on November 6, 2007. Uh, that writ was denied on January 28, 2008, at which time his conviction and sentence became final. He went on to, pardon me, state post-conviction. He was represented by Wendy Renee Thomas Hobbs, and the Oklahoma City District Attorney and, and Attorney General uh, pursued the state post-conviction or, or defended the conviction on state post-conviction. That is also before the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals. The procedure in Oklahoma is a little bit different. They decide post-conviction if a hearing is required, they'll send it back to the trial court for the hearing. The trial court will issue findings of fact and conclusions of law, but then it goes back to the uh, Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals and they make the ultimate decision. Um, he filed a motion under seal on uh, February 16, 2005. I don't know what it was. It may have been something to do with compensation uh, because he's had indigent defense attorneys and his attorneys have been compensated either through the state court system or the federal court system during all his post-conviction claims. Um, the, uh, or it may have been a motion for recusal. So, um, because there was an order entered on February 25th 
dismissing a motion for recusal of Steele, Steve Lyle, um, I guess on the Court of Criminal Appeals. I don't know why, because he filed it under seal. And um, I think he ended up recusing himself. There was an application to toll the time for briefing, which was granted. Glossop made a second request for extension of time, and that was granted. Once again, by the third request, the uh, council was ordered to appear and show cause uh, on October 25th, 2006 at 9 a.m. Why the application for post-conviction couldn't have been filed by the, the 20th, or if it wasn't filed by the 20th. But Glossop filed his application by the 20th. He also required uh, filed a request to conduct discovery. Um, and then uh, the state was ordered to respond. It also requested one extension of time, which was granted, and filed its response on June 11th, 2007. The opinion was issued on October 6th, I mean, December 6th, 2007, uh, in which post-conviction relief was denied and the request for an evidentiary hearing and discovery were denied. Um, Glossop's issues raised dealt with uh, in, ineffective appellate counsel and ineffectiveness of appellate counsel because they failed to raise issues on direct appeal and failed to fully develop the issues that they raised. Um, he also filed a prosecutorial misconduct, which he kind of re-argued a little bit what was filed at the direct appeal level and what he, he pursued in post-conviction. He also um, filed a, an ineffective assistance of counsel claim as to failure to investigate Sneed because there was a pretrial evalu evaluation of Sneed that showed he served time for a burglary and a bomb threat. And somehow this showed that Sneed was not the controllable person that the, the court painted him, or that the uh, prosecutor painted him out to be. And they failed to use that evaluation to, to show that he was not subservient to Glossop. Um, they also filed ineffective assistance due to counsel's failure to argue judicial bias when the judge openly cried during part of the trial and denied, that denied Glossop a fair trial, that the court failed to keep the jury sequestered and jurors were allowed to move their car during deliberations, and that uh, all of those cumulative errors warrant a new trial. The findings were that as to Proposition 1, the counsel's argument on direct appeal did not fall be below reasonable conduct and Glossop's claim was barred by race judicata because he argued that he'd argue that on direct appeal and it had been decided. Um, that found Proposition 2 was claimed to merely expand the direct appeal claim and that counsel was not ineffective and the evidence would not have changed the outcome of Glossop's trial. They found the claim was not raised on direct appeal and the issue was not preserved at trial. Counsel did not move for a mistrial or seek recusal of the judge. Glossop had presented no evidence that overcame the presumption of judicial impartiality and further could not show ineffective assistance for failure to raise the issue. Um, Glossop failed to present anything from trial counsel 
to indicate whether or not he knew about the practice of having jurors move their vehicles or whether he was given an opportunity to object to the practice. Jurors were accompanied by court officers and did not have inappropriate communications. Absent an affidavit from Glossop's counsel, the proposition must fail. And then finally, uh, five, previous counsel was not ineffective and there was no cumulative error to consider. Then he moves on to federal habeas and we're getting close to the end, people. I know we're probably all tired and poor Kyle doesn't know as much and it's just taking all in, aren't you, Kyle? Yes, I'm just because trying I'm to just sitting here reading lot. from my <laughs> no, there's a, it's it's a lot. I mean, there's so much in this case. Yeah. Well, it's like it's, it's a pretty obvious case, but like a lot of judicial paperwork. Yeah. And I think it's important. And, and that's why I'm kind of uh, in this case, I really wanted to look at what he's raised before and how it was decided. Because. Next week, when we talk about the 2015 subsequent post-conviction, the Reed Smith report, the claims by Don Knight uh, to the district attorney, and the claims by McDougal and his little butt buddies, um, I, I think it's really important that we look at what he's raised before and how that played out. Because while some of the stuff is just thought of by these advocates, it's not new. Right. And you can find it in Glossop statements to police. You can find it in statements made by other people about what Glossop told them. And you can find it in these prior appeals. So I think it's really important in this particular case to kind of look at uh, everything he's raised and everything he said was wrong with his trial. Um, he raised multiple grounds for relief, including sufficiency of the evidence at guilt stage, evidentiary errors that, that occurred at his trial, an, a claim regarding trial error because of the posters, prosecutorial misconduct, first stage and second stage comments, ineffective assistance of counsel, including failure to introduce Sneed's interrogation video, failure to impeach witnesses with the fact that Tulsa Hotel experienced shortages, failure to impeach Billy Hooper regarding her error about motel rentals. She was apparently saying that he was renting rooms off the books and there was paperwork that showed that that couldn't have happened or, you know, something really kind of bizarre. Um, Failure to object to irrelevant prejudicial evidence. Failure to, to object to prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, a claim about sufficiency of the evidence in the penalty stage. Claim about jury instructions in the second stage. Uh, and in Oklahoma, it's first stage is guilt, second stage is penalty. They're kind of used interchangeably, so I will use them interchangeably. Uh, a, he raised a claim regarding the victim impact testimony. He raised a claim regarding the dismissal of the three jurors. He raised a claim regarding the omission of Barry's photograph. He raised an ineffective assistance of counsel claim on failure to investigate. 
and judicial bias, and then of course the cumulative error. Um, a second motion for discovery. He filed a motion to discovery, which was pretty quickly denied. He filed a second motion for discovery on um, November 3rd, 2008, and that was responded to on the 26th. On May 26, 2010, which is kind of a two, you know, almost two-year, 18-month delay, uh, the court granted the discovery request as to count three, the posters displayed at trial. And it's interesting because while they couldn't put, nobody could put their hands on the posters in the state appellate pr process, and I don't think he even raised the poster issue in state post-conviction. By the time of the federal habeas claim, the state actually had the actual posters. And so they conducted the discovery and then um, the parties filed supplemental briefing and then the state actually located the posters and filed a motion to supplement the record and filed the, the posters into the record, um, which is pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Glossop opposed that. He didn't want that. And during this process, his attorneys were being paid under the federal system. So Oklahoma must be one of the states that, um, that has compensation for post-conviction counsel on federal habeas because there are uh you know on the docket there are applications and and orders for payment to glossop's attorney and i'm not you know i don't mean that to disparage the attorneys they deserve to get paid for what they do so but a lot of times it's implied that they're not getting paid and so they're not doing the job that they should be doing. And in this particular case, uh, I think that they were, you know, they were being paid and they were doing the best job they could for Glossop. But again, the underpinning of his conviction are his own words and his own statements. Even an interview with police that an attorney told him not to give. And tried to tell police, hey, look, I'm representing him. He doesn't want to talk to you. And Glossop's like, he ain't representing me. I ain't, he's not my attorney. No, I want to talk to you. And I think that's because Glossop's manipulative. And so he thinks he can talk his way out of anything. And he's probably gotten as far as he has without a criminal record because he is, for the most part, able to talk his way out of trouble. And when that doesn't work, he's able to just walk away and move on and get away from it. So um, they, uh, the court, the record was supplemented on August 31st, or, or no, rather, I'm sorry, on um, September 28th. Uh, but the, the supplemental, the supplemented record was submitted to the court prior to that. So the court had time to look at it. Um, the motion to supplement was granted. Glossop's motion for evidentiary hearings on 
claims three, five, six, and seven was denied because the claims could be resolved based on the existing record, which is the standard in federal court. Um, after EDPA, you have to develop your record in the state court proceedings. You cannot lay behind a log and then go to federal court and say, oh, wait, we have to develop this. Send us back to state court to do it. Or let us do it in federal court. No, no, no. Federal court is not meant to make independent findings. Federal court makes findings based on the state court record. Um, and there are very few exceptions unless it's something that was hidden from you, like a Brady violation or something along those lines, then you may get a hearing in federal court or the federal court, like they did with Rodney Reed, they may actually send you back to state court to have hearings and develop the record there. On the uh, sufficiency of the evidence, uh, the court's findings, he denied relief on the 28th of September, 2010. And he found that he could not weigh conflicting evidence or consider witness credibility. And this is something we need to remember because every article, every press conference, every word in the Reed Smith report talks about witness credibility and weighing conflicting evidence. That's not the that's not for the courts, either state or federal to do. Weighing conflicting evidence is for the jury to do. And once they've done it, generally the courts respect their decision. Um, they also don't consider witness credibility. Again, the jury does that. The jury determines who's credible and who's not. And the courts respect that decision absent some proof that witnesses are not credible. And it takes a lot to, to present evidence that will have a court say a witness is not, was not credible. Um, and usually it, it, it involves the witness having to come forward and say, I lied. And even then, sometimes police, don't, sometimes not police, courts don't believe it because you'll see that they're put under pressure by Innocence Project and investigators and they'll, you know, they'll finally cave and say what, what they want to hear in order to get them to stop. Um, kind of like what they're allegedly doing with police. The court also found that the uh, Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals factual determinations were all reasonable uh, because Oklahoma law does not require independent corroboration of an accomplice's testimony as asserted by Glossop, his claim failed. The court further found there was no constitutional requirement to that accomplice testimony be independently corroborated and ruled that the OCCA sufficiency of the evidence analysis of Gloss's claims was in line with EDPA's standard of review. As to the evidentiary errors uh, cited by Glossop, they failed. He failed to show that the OCCA's decision was unreasonable and his due process rights were not violated. Um, or he failed to show that his due process rights were violated. Um, Lisa's, I mean, a lot of the just kind of the standard objections that the convicted make, I mean, how much of these are kind of specific to this case and how much of these 
that you're going to see these types of appeals made in 80% of the convictions? I think you're probably, you're going to see these types, you know, arguments are going to be a little different and specifics are going to be a little different, but I think for the most part, you know, they're, they're going to go to federal court and they're going to say all the witnesses offered by the state were lying and the prosecutors were lying and everybody was lying. And the only person telling you the truth, your honor is my client. Yeah. You know, he's the only person, he's the one sitting on death row, but yeah, he's that, the it only like on one all these that's appeals, being totally like, honest. My counsel didn't do a good job. Everybody's lying. Somebody yeah. filed some paperwork wrong. Let me off. Yeah. Um, but that is, uh, you know, and again, they, they talked about, you know, basically on sufficiency of the evidence, they kind of said, well, um, you know, Glossop had other sources for money and he made more money selling his belongings, even though what he told, uh, what he accounted for at the time was not what he's trying to say now. Um, and a lot of times it is the, the accused stories change. And, um, and then they cite anything that doesn't, you know, that doesn't fit or they, they kind of say, like in Glossop's case, they say he's, he's in prison based entirely on the word of Justin Steed, when in reality, he's in prison based on his own words. And the fact that they showed him hiding a murder for 17 hours. So, um, as to the claim, uh, made about the posters, the court found that because Glossop did not contend that any of the statements on the posters were inaccurate, any error did not have a substantial and injurious effect on or influence the jury verdict. As to prosecutors, uh, comments, uh, it's kind of weird because later on in the opinion, he seems to say. There may be some merit to some of the prosecutorial misconduct claims, but they didn't affect the fairness of Glossop's trial. But in his actual prosecutorial misconduct findings, he doesn't say that. He says the statements regarding the absence of Glossop's fingerprints were reasonable inference based on evidence, as were statements regarding Glossop's motive. While he was initially arrested as an accessory, charging decisions are discretionary and the evidence supported his conviction as a principal to murder. Uh, the comments regarding the lesser included offense claim asserted by Glossop did not alter the fundamental fairness of the trial. The rejection of Glossop's claims regarding victim impact evidence, evidence were not unreasonable. The prosecutor's statements during redirect of Kayla Persley regarding statements in police reports was fair in light of Glossop's counsel's assertion during his cross-examination of Persley. As to the second stage, and there was one where the prosecutor took, I think a picture of Barry, the picture of Barry, Barry Ventrice and kind of threw it onto the defense table and was like, I put the blood here. And that was kind of arguing because Glossop is the one who orchestrated the murder. He is the one who's more, morally culpable if not legally liable than sneed and that's you know maybe it was a little bit too dramatic maybe it kind of crossed the line and i think there was an objection 
that was sustained. Um, but it still, you know, was kind of a fair commentary on the evidence. And uh, the, the judge found that the OCCA's analysis of his claims was not contrary to or an unreasonable application of Supreme Court precedent or based on an unreasonable determination of the facts. Um, and his cumulative error claim was rejected because the errors did not deprive him of a fair trial. As for ineffective assistance, uh, the decision not to introduce Sneed's video was reasonable trial strategy as a videotape would have shown the jury Sneed's statement that Glossop masterminded the murder. Regarding the failure to show shortage at Tulsa Motel, Glossop failed to show that counsel's performance was deficient. The state's proffer of testimony from Donna Van Treese would have diminished any impact from the Tulsa records. Counsel's failure to impeach Billy Hooper caused no material prejudice given the testimony from other witnesses. Um, and again, I think Billy Hooper may have been mistaken, but a mistake is not always a lie. So she may have been mistaken, but that didn't affect the outcome of the trial. Uh, and it didn't, it didn't prejudice Glossop because other witnesses testified similar to Billy Hooper. Um, they also found that the OCCA reasonably applied Strickland in evaluating his ineffective assistance claims related to counsel's failure to object to irrelevant prejudicial evidence and the claim prosecutorial misconduct. The sufficiency of the evidence at the penalty stage, uh, the judge found that a rational trier of fact could have found that Sneed was telling the truth and that Glossop employed him to commit murder for payment or the promise of payment. The OCCA's decision was reasonable. And again, Glossop took the money brought to him by Sneed, split it between them, and gave half of it to Sneed. That would be payment for Barry Ventrese's murder. It wasn't what Justin Sneed expected, but Justin chose not to argue. Um, and then uh, the, the findings of the federal court uh, basically found that Glossop really didn't prove any of the uh, errors that he complained of deprived him of a fair and impartial jury. And he didn't identify any yeah. Supreme Court or federal appellate decisions uh, that warranted that he be granted relief. Well, that's always the key, right? I mean, no trial is going to be perfect. But the question is, was there an error that actually resulted in a, you know, right. biased jury versus just an error that's just going to happen, you know, human nature? Yeah. And, and a, an error that isn't as much as you're making it out to be. Um, they also, the court found on the failure to investigate claim, found that Glossop had failed to demonstrate a reasonable probability of a different outcome had the report from Sneed's 1997 psychiatric evaluation been used to cross-examine Sneed. Information about Sneed's prior crimes and whether they were committed alone with someone else or influenced by someone else was totally absent from that report, which failed to provide any insight into Sneed's prior crimes. Glossop made no showing that he was prejudiced by counsel's failure to utilize this report. Um, and I think it's also important to note that uh, whether that report would have been admissible or not is really a question 
for the trial court. It may not have even been admissible under any circumstance because Sneed's on, not on trial and Sneed's condi mental condition is not at issue. It would be irrelevant and it would be hearsay. Uh, and they might have been able to use statements Sneed made in it to impeach him. But again, that depends on if Sneed denies making the statements or denies having been examined. So there are a lot of there are a lot of moving parts to getting a witness's psychiatric evaluation admitted in a criminal trial against a co-defendant when that witness is a cooperating witness. Um, and, and, it not, and it may not have changed the outcome of the trial because if Sneed said, well, yeah, I, I, I made the bomb threat because my friend thought it would be funny and he gave me the phone or, you know, I, we committed, I committed the burglary with my, my stepbrother uh, because we needed money for drugs. And he knew these people would be out of town. I mean, you know, there are, I'm speculating as to what might have happened, but the report doesn't say whether Sneed committed these crimes alone or with someone else. Or whether, you know, my, my, uh, my stepbrother brought me to the house and pointed it out and told me to go in and take the TV. And if Sneed had testified to that, because it's absent from the absent from the report, the you know the defense attorney has just corroborated the state's case by having Steed say, "Yeah, you know, my brother got me to burglarize a house. My brother got me to call in a bomb threat." Um, the uh, the court finally on the judicial bias allegation as to Judge Gray crying found that. Uh, Glossop's vague assertions were inadequate. He failed to make specific allegations of actual bias by the judge or the appearance of bias. Counsel was not ineffective for failing to raise the issue, either judicial or juror at trial or on appeal. Uh, and the court found that actually what, what Glossop described would lead more to juror bias than judicial bias. The jurors observing the judge crying could have biased them against Glossop, in other words. And uh, on the cumulative error claim, um, Glossop failed to specify the claimed errors based on the record as a whole. Uh, the cumulative effect of the prosecutor's errors when combined with the court's erroneous evidentiary ruling regarding the posters is not such that errors can no longer be determined to be harmless. Um, so they, he pretty much denied Glossop's claims. He did grant a certificate of appealability on the first degree murder in ground one, sufficiency of the evidence, ground three, the posters, ground four, the failure to object to prosecutorial misconduct, ground five, failure to introduce the videotape, and ground six, the murder for remuneration aggravator. The uh, case went before the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeal um, by notice of appeal filed on October, uh, October 20th, 
And the panel for that case was uh, current Supreme Court Judge Gorsuch, Judge Circuit Judges Murphy and O'Brien. Um, Glossop filed a motion to appoint Kathleen Lloyd with Mark Henriksen and Lenita Henriksen, who had been appointed to represent him in the underlying district court case. Um, oral argument was initially set on April 23rd, 2012 for June 27th, 2012, but Glossop filed a motion to enlarge time and oral argument was rescheduled to July 10th, 2012. Uh, the case was argued, briefing was filed, and I don't have all those dates. Uh, the case was argued by Kathleen Lord and Seth Branham for the state. Uh, the decision was uh, authored by Judge Circuit Judge Murphy. They affirmed the district court's denial of relief. Uh, a request for rehearing was filed by Glossop citing a case called Wilson versus Workman, which was a 2009 case out of the 10th Circuit that held that an ineffective assistance claim in Oklahoma is not adjudicated on the merits and is thus subject to de novo review when the OCCA does not consider non-record evidence. And I didn't mention this, but in his direct appeal, and I think in his um, post-conviction claims of ineffective assistance, he did file affidavits and, and um, non-record evidence in support of the claims that he was making, but the court, the OCCA, didn't consider them because they weren't part of the record, and it considered on the record only, and that's, that is generally, uh, that is generally how appellate courts do they're they're not an original they're not a court of an original jurisdiction so they don't consider they don't make their own record their decisions are based on what's on record um the order denying both panel and on banc rehearing was uh entered on september 23rd 2013 and the court the 10th circuit's mandate issued on October 1st, 2013. There was an application for extension of time to file a petition for writ of certiorari filed, filed at the U.S. Supreme Court, which was granted. Glossop did file a petition. It looks like he may have filed it. Um, he filed, it was, his petition was supposed to be filed in February. It was actually not filed until March 5th, but uh, 2014, but there may have been an additional extension of time, or he may have just filed it a little late, and the court hear, heard it anyway. The state filed its brief in opposition. Uh, the case was distributed for conference on May 2nd, and his petition was denied on May 5th. Uh, Glossop also filed a an amended petition for writ of habeas corpus at U.S. District Court in Oklahoma on January 8, 2015, which was dismissed for lack of jurisdiction because federal court, you have to file a, uh, a request to file a successive writ with the 10th Circuit Court of Appeal or the Circuit Court of Appeal, and it decides whether or not you can file the successive claim. 
in district court. And Glossop didn't do that. He filed that pro se, alleging new evidence. And we'll we'll talk about that next week because some of that is probably going to um, be covered, I guess, so to speak, in some of the claims raised on Glossop's behalf starting in 2015. Um, and then I think at this point, I think what um, we can do now, I think we can call it a day. We've gone over a lot of material. And um, I can pick up with the 2014 clemency next week or, or in two weeks when we do part two. That sounds great. There's a lot of information. You've done a ton of work. It's amazing. <laughs> and I've got two weeks of more work. Luckily, <laughs> I'm off tomorrow so I can get Yeah, if anybody there. wants to know that you didn't know about the case, my goodness. <laughs> well, hopefully you can take the time to reread all the notes and look at some of the, the articles that are coming out now. And I'll email you some that I've copied and, you know, um, that I've saved. And you can read those and, and kind of see a little bit more where this case is, is headed. You can, you can definitely tell the people who just basically spend 45 minutes on a podcast rereading Wikipedia and those that have actually done the research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I've just spent about three hours going through. And that's, I, and like I said, we finished his federal habeas claim. We haven't talked about his clemency claim. And we haven't talked about um, his challenge to midazolam. We haven't talked about Don Knight and his press conference or Glossop's execution dates, uh, which we'll, again, we'll talk about next time in two weeks. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much. Have a great, uh, happy Independence Day. Thank happy you. Happy everybody. Yeah, happy 4th of July, and um, <clears throat> thank you for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien and Kyle. If you like the show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us in two weeks for episode 13, State of Oklahoma versus Richard Eugene Glossop, part two. We'll talk about Glossop's clemency claim to the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board, the 2015 claims made by Don Knight in a successive state post-conviction claim, unsuccessful, that is, Don Knight's 2020 and 2021 requests for information from the Oklahoma County DA, the claims made by Oklahoma lawmakers led by Representative Kevin, Kevin McDougal, and the results of the so-called independence investigation uh, by Reed Smith's firm commissioned by McDougal. Finally, we'll talk about Glossop's 2022 third state post-conviction application, which was filed on July 1st, 2022, after his execution date was set for uh, September 22nd, 2022, or September 25th, 2022. We'll talk about the execution dates as well next week, or we in two weeks. Until then, everyone have a safe and happy 4th of July, a great two weeks, and stay safe. Good night.